All right. So, we're going to be hitting up the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now, who's enjoyed this series so far? Yeah, hands everywhere. Absolutely. Is there a more meaty book? Is there a more riveting tale of two kingdoms that battling opposition against each other? The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of God, going head to head. Who's going to win? God, spoiler alert. (laughs) Hearing about a man who is being called into exile. As we realize we too have that same calling on our life. We are to be pilgrims and exiles, 1 Peter says. This is not our home. This is not our the place that we are going to be living forever. But we are just passing through. We are going towards that final destination, the kingdom of God. Yeah? And Daniel is on this pilgrimage. He's in this exile, but his eyes are always fixed on the kingdom of heaven. And we see one thing that is right from the beginning of Daniel to right, right to the end, right from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, and that is this, that our God is faithful. Our God was faithful, our God is faithful, and we know our God will be faithful. We see in uh, the very beginning of chapter 1 of Daniel, God was faithful in executing his judgments against the people of Israel. He said in his law, you will give me a Sabbath for the land. Every seven years you leave the land dormant. For 490 years, Israel neglected God's command. And so he sent his prophets, Jeremiah, and they said, for 70 years, you will go into captivity. You'll be taken captive by the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans, by Nebuchadnezzar, and ripped out of your homeland, ripped out of Jerusalem. The temple will be destroyed and you'll be taken away. And God was faithful in keeping his promise because he wanted his people to call upon his name, which we'll see soon. Because God had ordained Israel to be his voice, his light, his priesthood to the world, that the world may know that there is one God in all of heaven and earth, one God who is mighty to save, one God who is worthy of all our worship, and that is Yahweh, the most high God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he ripped Israel out of that, kept his faithful promises and took them to the land of Babylon where Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael were taken captive, put into eunuch school and um, we hear about their adventures. In chapter 2 we find all of a sudden they're under threat of death purely for being wise, smart, smart guys that Nebuchadnezzar didn't like because they couldn't tell him his dream. So they called out to God and they faithfully prayed to him. And God in his faithfulness delivered them. He gave them the vision um, of, of what the king had himself had seen in his night, in his night dreams. And Daniel stood before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and declared, this is what you saw and this is what it means. This prophecy of this statue of gold, of iron, of, of bronze, of iron... Uh, And I've forgotten, silver, I think, was in there, surely. Silver, the Medes and the Persians. And again, we see, played out throughout history, these prophecies that Daniel prophesied, uh, and and that Nebuchadnezzar indeed prophesied, of the beasts in chapter 7 and chapter 8, playing out over centuries, intricately detailed prophecy, God showing his faithfulness, that he knows the end from the beginning, that God is able to to write down history in advance and thus show he is almighty God. He is outside of time itself. He is all-knowing, he is all-powerful and nothing happens without his um, say over it. And so we see, we pick it up in, um, or we see see in chapter five, God 
being faithful in executing his judgment against Belshazzar, who had neglected the God of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And boom, in come the Medes and Persians, just as prophesied. We see in Daniel chapter 6, so we pick up Daniel chapter 9 in between chapters 5 and 6, but we see in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel seeing the beginning from the end, knows God is coming back and I'm going to be faithful to him to the very end. So when the king says there is a command that nobody will worship or, or pray to any other person or God other than me, what does Daniel do? He gets on his knees and he does what he's done every day of his life and prays toward Jerusalem three times a day. He gets on and he declares, my heart is for God and God alone. I am a servant of the most high God. God is faithful to keep his word and I will pray and pray to him alone. And so he gets thrown into the, um, into the den of lions and God in his faithfulness comes in again and delivers him miraculously, mightily, such that... Um, King Darius, I believe it was, um, declares there is no God under kingdom, uh, uh, no God under heaven and earth who can do what the God of Daniel can do. And so we see time and time again, God is faithful to keep his word and God declares his word. And so we pick up Daniel chapter 9 where we see in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Again, all according to God's foreordained prophesied word. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. A couple things to note here, guys. Daniel, a guy who hears from the Lord through angels coming to him, through prophecies, through dreams and visions of these wild beasts. What's he doing? He's, I mean, he's, he's a man who writes scripture, but he's in the word. He's believing the word. He's making it a habit. You see, we often think, oh, you know, God, why don't you just speak to me and have that you know, clap of thunder and boom. And yet we neglect the very fact that God has given us a whole book of inspired writings for him to speak to us. And Daniel is reading this. And, and I just want to say, if you want God to hear from you and you're not reading the word, you don't want God to, to speak to you. If you want God to speak to you, but you are not reading his word, you do not want God to speak to you. All right, that's a really good starting place. And so Daniel is reading the word and he's reading in the prophet Jeremiah, um, both chapter 25 and chapter 29, it says this. For thus says the Lord, so verse 10, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. After 70 years, 67 years have passed. It is now about the year 539 BC and for 67 years, Daniel has served God faithfully. Whilst in exile, having become a eunuch, under all these threats of death on his very own life, time and time again, through different empires, Daniel has endured to 67 years. And he's reading the scripture and he reads the prophet Jeremiah and he realizes it's almost time to go home. Can you imagine what would have been going through his mind? Can you imagine how his heart would have been racing? It's almost time to go home. And friends, we're never actually told that Daniel got home. 
We're never actually told that Daniel got back to Jerusalem to see the temple rebuilt. But we are told this in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, speaking of the faithful saints in the past who endured, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Daniel probably could have got back to Jerusalem, but he was seeking a different homeland, a heavenly homeland. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Just let that sink in a little bit, guys. We are pilgrims. We are called to be exiles, aliens in this world, seeking that heavenly kingdom because God our Father is preparing this very moment a city, a heavenly city for us. And that is where our hope is. Our hope is not in getting comfortable. Our hope is not in building our home in Babylon. For 67 years, the Israelites had learned the ways of the Babylon, Babylonians. They'd learned their gods. They'd learned their education system. They'd learned how to be comfortable and make their home there. And now Daniel is reading that in three years' time, we are to be uprooted again and go back to our holy land, go back to the promised land. And Daniel looks around and he sees that the people are not quite ready. Now, I just want to finish that part, passage in Jeremiah 29. It says, after 70 years, I will cause you to return. Because here we get a, a glimpse into God's heart. You see, God's heart is not to wreak death and destruction upon us, but is to bring glory to his name. And in so doing, we are caught up in his love. When God honors his name, he honors us and lifts us up into him. And he says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that picture of God calling out to us, to every single one of us here today, whether you know him or not. God is saying, search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. He's not some distant God that we have to go through some ritual priesthood to get there, some ceremony after ceremony in the hopes that one day we might be made clean. Jesus came, he died on the cross that we might become clean, that we might become the righteousness of God and boldly come and enter into his very throne room, into his very presence. And so that's exactly what Daniel does as he reads this prophecy and sees that this is gonna be fulfilled. He gets on his knees, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes and makes petition. Now, why does Daniel do that? I mean, Daniel of all people knows that God is faithful to keep his word. Daniel has seen it time and time again. Miraculous supernatural deliverance after miraculous supernatural deliverance. Yet he sees fit to get on his knees to put on sackcloth and ashes and pray and plead and intercede on behalf of Israel. Well, I would say for two reasons Daniel does this. First of all, because prayer is what he is. Daniel is a man who has learnt the power of 
prayer. Intercession isn't something that he just does. It's something he has become. He's become an intercessor. He has the very thoughts of God in his heart, and so he's relaying these on. He realizes that the more time he spends on his knees in the very throne room of God, the more he is changed on the inside himself. I mean, do you think Daniel got an appreciation for praying after chapter 2 when God came and showed him the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had had? Do you think him and his friends got an appreciation for prayer, for calling on the name of the Lord after they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they made that bold declaration, let it be known we will serve no other God but the most high God, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. And he will save us, but if not... We are trusting in him. And so as Daniel comes into the throne room of God, what's happening is he he is becoming changed on the inside. It is true that we become like the people we hang around with. And if we are hanging around God Almighty, will that not change us just a little bit? Will that not teach us a little bit of humility? Will that not teach us that he's a God of love, a God of holiness, and burn away that dross that we continue to carry on those sins that we refuse to repent of, as we come into his presence, that all just is burnt away because it says he's a consuming fire. And as we come into his presence, we see not only that he's a holy, righteous God, but he's a God of love. He's a God whose heart is for his people, whether they rebel against him and shake their fist in defiance or whether they're on their knees worshipping him. He's the God that goes after the one sheep that has gone astray, who leaves the 99 and says, I will go and fight those wolves. I will go after them. He's the God who doesn't abandon us to our own folly and sin, but becomes man himself, is crucified on the cross. And he's the God who doesn't leave the son in the grave. He's the God that comes in and resurrects him with all his might and power. And that is what we're saying celebrating this day. And so Daniel sees that he's a God who changes us, but also that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And church, if we could truly grasp this, if we could truly grasp, first of all, what God has done in the making of us as righteous sons and heirs, sons and daughters of God, heirs of Christ, with the Holy Spirit living in us, that we have access to this power that is beyond us, that is greater than anything we can imagine, that God has called us to be the church, that God has called us to be his body and to do even greater things than what Jesus has done. If that truly, if that reality really sunk into us, would we not be a changed people? And so Daniel is faced with this reality and he gets on his knees and this is the prayer that he prays. He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, We have sinned. We have committed iniquity and we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to water it down in the presence of the all-knowing, all-seeing God. He calls it for what it is. He doesn't say, well, is it really a sin if you're doing... Yes, it's a sin. And I'm sorry for it, Lord. I repent. And Daniel is doing this on behalf of the people because here's the thing. The Bible records nothing evil of Daniel at all doesn't record one single sin. And, but he comes and he stands and I, he identifies. And that's what an intercessor is. He's an, an intercessor is someone who stands in the gap between God and his judgment and says, Lord, in your goodness, in your mercy, have forgiveness. And you know what? Daniel is doing exactly what Jesus does for us. Romans 8 um, talks about how... Romans 8... Oh, yep, Right there. 34, 
Um, well, 33, let's go from there. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And of the Spirit, it says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So as Daniel stands in the gap, he's doing what the Holy Spirit is doing for us and what the Holy Spirit should be doing in us and through us. And so Daniel takes a stand and he says, my people Israel are not ready to go home. Lord, make us ready. He says, neither have we hated your servants, the prophets, and spoken in your name to our kings, our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, Shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and far off in all countries of which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Do you see the contrast? God is faithful. We are so unfaithful. God is merciful. We are so unfaithful. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by the servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. Every one of us, the Bible says, stands guilty before the Lord. And, and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against us, uh, against him. Friends, God is faithful to keep his word. And that works all for the, for the glory of God and for the good of those who love him. But for those who reject him, who harden their hearts towards him, that works out in judgment. And God will be faithful in coming back and judging the sheep and the goats, it says. And for those who reject him, the judgment is hell. And what Daniel is saying here is God is merciful. God has forgiveness for those of us who would receive it. But for those who reject it, God will be faithful in his judgment. And that is a terrifying thing to behold. And that is what Israel was experiencing at that time. 70 years of God's judgment because God is faithful to keep his commands. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such as never, has never been done as has what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Friends, this is our opportunity to make our prayer before God, that we might confess our iniquities and understand God's truth. You see, since the very beginning, it has been the same. People have said, oh, and, and just before Jerusalem was sacked by the, the Babylonians, they were still saying and mocking the prophet Jeremiah as he was saying, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, Nebuchadnezzar is coming, he's going to take you away, he's going to destroy the temple. And what did they say? No, no, it's not going to happen. They had false prophets declaring prosperity and happiness and it's all just love and niceness. And 2 Peter 3 says, since the very beginning people have been saying this, that God is slow concerning his judgments. He's not going to come back anytime soon. Live, eat, drink, be merry. 
Don't worry. And what does the Bible say? It says in 2 Peter 3 that God is not slow, but he is patient. He does not want one single person of his creation, one single person, one single son or daughter of his that he has made, that he has made for a purpose to perish. But he's patient with us, allowing us to go on in our sin and our rebellion and our shaking our fist in defiance at him because he loves us intensely as a father loves a son. Unconditionally, he calls us to come to him that we might be saved while there is still breath in our lungs. But friends, if we learn anything from the book of Daniel, we need to learn that he's faithful to keep his judgments and he's faithful to deliver those who would call out upon his name. And there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And as we're reading this, we're going to see Gabriel's about to show up and declare this messianic prophecy saying, guys, you have a problem. It is sin. And I have the answer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Prince, the Mashiach Nagid is coming. How good. And so he says, therefore... The Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. He's calling not for justice. He's calling for grace. The people have sinned. They have committed iniquity. He's saying, this is what we've done. But Lord, shower your grace upon us. And that is something God loves to do. I pray, let your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and all your people are a reproach to those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of, your, because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And feel the intensity pick up. As the climax of his prayer comes, the passion and the intensity. Oh Lord, hear! Oh Lord, forgive! Oh Lord, listen and act! Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And as Daniel's praying this prayer, he's on his knees, he's in sackcloth and ashes. All of a sudden, we hear, as we read on, in the very throne room of God, God turns out and points to Gabriel and says, Gabriel, go. Go, Gabriel. Now is the time for the message. Now is the time to tell Daniel about Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. You're going to tell him the exact Day that Jesus will walk into Jerusalem riding on a donkey while the people sing the Messianic Psalm 118 where they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Most High. Glory to God in the highest. You are gonna come and you are gonna tell my Daniel this because he is my prophet, he is my beloved and I'm gonna share the things that are yet to come. Wow. Wow, and so the Bible goes on and says, While I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, 
for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. It's a a subtle little thing here, but Daniel is still keeping time by the temple's timetable. He's in Babylon. The temple is destroyed, but his heart is still in the holy city. He's still worshipping the the God of his forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he keeps time by that, and he's on his knees praying by that. And just as he's on his knees at the time that the evening offering would be taking place in Jerusalem, were the temple not destroyed, Gabriel shows up and says, Hey, Daniel, sorry to interrupt this beautiful prayer of yours. You write it down, and people enjoy it for, for generations. But Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. You see, God tells his beloved what is to come. We see in uh, the Gospels, the Apostle John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And who is it that authored the book of Revelation? Or Jesus, technically, the first few chapters. Um, but it's the apostle of the, uh, it's the revelation of John, the Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ penned by John. And it's all about the end times that were to come. We see in Genesis, God talks, talks about Abraham, how Abraham is my friend. Therefore, should I hide from him what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And he goes and he tells him what was to come. Daniel, the greatly beloved prophet, gets this vision about the end times of what is to come and also what was future yet for Daniel but is now past and we have the beautiful glory of looking back in hindsight and seeing how God has fulfilled it. So when we enter these prophecies, first of all again, as David said, there are some things that are closed hand. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is the son of God. He came, died, rose again. All closed hand issues. Open hand, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about about end times, um, oh, what's the technical word? Eschatology, um, where great scholars on both sides will have interesting, great debates about how it's actually going to play out. But what we shouldn't do when we come to this is we shouldn't just close it and say, well, this could be divisive. This could be, you know, uh, maybe, you know, it's, it's all just too hard to know. Because God told Daniel for a purpose, yeah? God had it written down, put in his holy book for a very reason. And in fact, about a third of the Bible is prophecy. And so we neglect it at our own peril. It is actually a great gift. It is a great weapon for the faith, for our faith. And we should be built up by it. We should be encouraged by it, knowing the end, that God knows the beginning from the end. And that in the end, God wins. <laughs> and so we do not serve a fallen Messiah. Although the kingdom of Babylon might look like it's taking power, it's taking ground, that the kingdom of God is under assault. And as you look over the, over the globe at different countries where the church is getting hammered and hammered and hammered, we know how it ends. We know that in the midst of the persecution, the church thrives the best. When the spiritual battle gets at, at its most intense, that is when Christians most come alive, when Christians learn the power of prayer, the power of intercession, and the power of walking in the Holy Spirit. And so though we might see that the world is under the sway of the wicked one for a time, we know that Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to set all things to order. And so as we read this, we need to take heart. 
We need to take heart that Jesus knows exactly what is going on and he's planned it, that Jesus is no plan B. And so we see as we enter this um, prophecy, the book, and, and, and one of the things that, that has come under attack um, uh, by, by critics, by skeptics of the Bible, and particularly Daniel, because if you honestly assess the book of Daniel and you look at a history textbook and you read the book of Daniel, you will be left without a shadow of a doubt that, the book, that, that, that this is a supernatural inspired book. If you haven't heard Dave's sermon on Daniel chapter 8, on Daniel chapter 7, just have a little listen to that and you, mind blown. And we're going to get into even more over the next few weeks. But because of that, people have looked at it and said, well, because I reject that there can be a God, the only reasonable explanation is that the book of Daniel and these prophecies in particular were written after the event because it is such intricately detailed historical fact that we can't deny the fact. Therefore, we have to deny when it was written. And this is the foolishness of man. You see, we have a Bible that makes some incredible claims that it is the, the word, the truth, the logos, that this is the book that guides us to salvation, that heaven is real, that God is real, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that Jesus performed all the miracles that he did, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the Messiah. So it makes some incredible claims. And in order to back up those claims, you need some incredible evidence, do we not? Yet when we present incredible evidence, because the presupposition is there cannot be incredible evidence, it's rejected. And so it's a circular argument that people find themselves in, much the same with... um, when we approach the whole topic of creation and evolution, we look and, man, I've studied the body. It is incredible, the design that's there. And even uh, the most staunch atheistic evolutionist cannot help but use words like design and, um, as, as they describe what's, what's going on about the information contained in one little strand of DNA. Yet because the naturalist comes with this preconceived supposition that There cannot be the supernatural. Therefore, they must interpret this incredible evidence of design for a creator, which which Romans 1 says you will all be held accountable for knowing that there is a God because of our bodies, because of nature. And so because of that, they come to this crazy conclusion that, well, how can I get around without appealing to the supernatural? For it is clearly a supernatural event. And so they say, well, in the beginning there was nothing it exploded, and over chance mutations over billions of years, here we are. Intricate, incredible design, or that looks like it's designed, but it's all just random nothingness. And this is the same position that people find themselves in when they approach the book of Daniel, and they reject from the outset the supernatural. Now, by way of illustration, I have a little card trick. So here we have a deck of cards. Absolutely nothing sus at all. You can see lots of different cards here. Sorry, I've gone into a dead spot. Down the middle, here we are. And um, David, can you just put your hand in there, any point that you want, right there? And if you take the top card there and hold that up, show everyone what that is. Oh, you got two, sorry, Uh, that one. Hold that up, show everybody. Now I'm taking it, it's the five of clubs. Wonderful, you'll see that? Isn't that amazing, the five of clubs? It's not really that amazing because I didn't tell you which card he would pick. However, what if I told you beforehand 
that I knew David was going to pick the five of clubs. Well, it just so happens I organised a slide. I knew you would pick the five of clubs. Now, some of you might still be a little bit sceptical, and right you may be. Maybe the IT person just quickly chose the card, whatever card I was going to choose that had uh, 52 cards ready to put up there. But I also wrote it down here as well. I knew you would choose the five of clubs. Just in case you doubted that I quickly wrote that there, I had a picture taken as well. I knew you would choose the five of clubs. This was at sunrise a few days ago on the 1st of April. Now, essentially, this is what God has done for us when he has given us the book of Daniel, almost anticipating that we would be so sceptical at the intricate detail of what the Bible has prophesied here. He had it translated in 270 AD. So Daniel was written, or it covers the period from 605 to about 537 BC, obviously written during Daniel's lifetime by Daniel, which Jesus states in Matthew chapter 24. But in 270 BC... We know that the, the Greek, Greek language um, was the empire-wide language. And so the Jews who primarily spoke Greek wanted it, their Holy Scriptures translated into Greek so that they could understand it. And so the Septuagint was um, uh, translated. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that this was around the 270 BC time, well before the prophecy that we're about to look at um, in, chapter t- in verse 24 and 25 took place. Yeah? So just keep that in mind, because this is important stuff. Now, I'm going to go through it, and I'm going to go through it quick, because I am wary of time. Um, There is a book called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson, published in, I think, 1894, and still, still available in circulation, that goes in exquisite detail about all the dates, the maths, and the numbers. And you're going to see there's going to be a few slides coming up that you're just going to be like, whoa, whoa. And it's very easy to get lost in the maths. But what I want you to understand is that this is not just some crazy, made-up, you know, kind of Nostradamus thing. This is the Word of God declaring in advance the exact day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and be declared as Messiah the Prince. Yeah? Yeah. So it says, 70 weeks or 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. A few small little things to tick off on the list, hey? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, so that's our first date, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, this is the second date, until the time that Messiah the Prince is declared, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens, Shabuah, and 62 weeks. Adding up to a total of 69. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So, a few things and again, I wish I had more time to go into it in more depth. But essentially when he's talking about the seven, seven and 62 sevens, what he's talking about is heptads, the same as we talk about a decade. So if I said to you, I'm going away for a decade, how long am I going away for? 10 years. 
Now, I didn't say I'm going away for 10 years, did I? But the way that the, uh, Daniel uses it, and again, in multiple other places in the Bible, when it talks about sevens, it's referring to years. And just in case we're left in any shadow of a doubt, the part where it talks about in, in chapter 27, that final 70th week, or 70th seven, the book of Revelation in chapter 11, 12, and 13 refers to this period of time as 1260 days, as 42 months, as three and a half years, and as times, times, and a half. Just in case we didn't get it, he didn't, he didn't give it in hours and minutes, which could have been perhaps more precise, but he's given it in just about every other conceivable way so that we can be sure that this is the time frame that he's working in. We know that it's a 360-day year lunar, lunar calendar that they're working off because that's what they've used the whole of... Um, the whole of the Bible is all in 360-day calendars. In fact, all the ancient civilizations used to use a 360-day calendar. It was only around um, the 701 BC that, due to the energy resonance from Mars and Earth orbiting in its special way that it does, transfer of energy, something stabilised and... You'll have to talk to the uh, astronomers if you want to know more detail about that, but apparently there's a whole lot of information that's very interesting. Um, but the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, the Persians, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Chinese, the Mayans, the Hindus, the Carthaginians, Etruscans and Teutons all used a 360-day calendar around this time. And so it makes sense that he would prophesy in that and that the Bible would be consistent throughout its, its uh, whole time frame, all the way up to Revelation. And that's why in, in Revelation it uses 1260 days, which is three and a half years of the 360-day calendar. Okay, so we have a start date, the time to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Now, we get that from the decree in Nehemiah chapter 2, where it talks about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, this was a particular day when Nehemiah had heard bad news about Jerusalem. It's in rubble. The temple's destroyed. The wall's destroyed. The people are in turmoil. And so he was sad. Now, being a king, the king's cupbearer, being sad can get your head chopped off. And so Artaxerxes noticed this and he's like, hmm, why are you sad? Thus commenced a conversation that triggered off this prophecy from the very command. Now we're going to see, if we do the maths, that 360 days times 67 years times 7, because of 67 weeks of years or like heptads, decades, equals 173,000 days. Uh, 173,880 days. So we're going to expect something pretty significant happening on that 173,880th day. Now, there's some difficulties because of the translation between the ancient calendar, the ancient Hebrew calendar, to our modern day calendar. But essentially, in the interest of speeding, speeding um, these slides up, we'll go to the next one. Um, and next one. We find, if we look back through the history dates, the 10th of Nisan, or the 6th of April in our modern-day calendar, 32 AD, is 173,880 days later. The very day Jesus walked in on that donkey and fulfilled the messianic promise 
coming as Messiah the King. See, God is very precise. God is very accurate. In fact, there were times when Jesus was out doing his thing, raising people from the dead, healing lepers, feeding thousands, and people wanted to crown him as king. They said, we have seen the Messiah. Let's crown him as king. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Woo! And what did Jesus do? He said, my time is not yet. And he slipped away. Time and time again, you see this happening. Why? Because Jesus knew there was a specific day set, a day of destiny, where Jesus was meant to fulfill this very prophecy that Gabriel gave Daniel back in 537 BC, that he was to ride in, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as Jesus marched into Jerusalem, being declared as Messiah the King, what were the people saying? They were singing the Messianic Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we miss this because we're not Jews. We're not used to the significance of these Messianic Psalms. But the Pharisees were well versed in every single line of Scripture. And they they realized that they are declaring Jesus as Messiah the Prince, This is blasphemy. And so they say to Jesus, Rabbi, if you're truly a good rabbi, you will stop your people from declaring this psalm. And they think because Jesus, they still think he's just a man, just an ordinary man. They haven't realized they have Messiah the Prince right before them. They think he's going to stop them. And what does Jesus say? Are you kidding me? If these guys stop, even the rocks will cry out. Nothing was stopping Jesus from meeting his destiny on that day and declaring he is the foreordained plan for the salvation of the entire world. He was God's plan from the very beginning when Adam and Eve took the fruit and the curse came on the serpent. He said, the seed of this woman will crush your head. All the way through scripture, we see the redemption of the Passover lamb, that by the blood of the lamb, the people will be saved. All the prophecies in the um, law of all the, this typology of it is only by the blood that we shall be saved. Jesus was planned from the very beginning and God told the exact day that the one and only person who can possibly fulfill all these prophecies about the Messiah would march in on a donkey and be declared Messiah the King. How good is that? We can have complete confidence in this Word of God. And if we can have complete confidence in this Word of God, that it is what it says it is, then we can have complete confidence in what He says is yet to come. And that changes everything for us, folks. That changes everything in this world. It changes how we relate to each other. It changes how we relate to God. It changes our view on life and death. It means that death is not the end. It is only the beginning. The friends, one day we are going to be called to go home. We're going home one day. Jesus says he's coming back on the clouds for his people. He will not leave us orphans. He will not leave us without a home. He will come back and he will redeem his people. He will redeem his bride and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And one day we're going to see him face to face and we'll see him as he is and we will be made like him. No more will we have death and suffering and pain. No more will we have to cry tears of grief over dead loved ones. No more because the Messiah, the Prince, is come. He is come and he has sacrificed himself on the cross. And because he has done that, he is able to defeat death by rising from the dead. And we can have certainty that he will keep his word when he says, I am coming back. And that is the last part of this prophecy. 
where he talks about what's going to happen at the very end. Oh, I'm losing my breath here. It says, (laughs) after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Jesus fulfilled that on the cross, friends. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it will be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, Jesus prophesied when he, when he came um, into Jerusalem, he looked over them and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known this, your day, what would make for your peace. But because you did not know it, now tribulations and turmoils will come to you. He says, but now they are hidden for your, from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with, within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus held them accountable to know the time of the Messiah. And because they did not know that, because they hardened their hearts towards him at each miracle, they plotted not how to, how to honor him as Messiah, they plotted how to kill him time and time again. They hardened their hearts. They would not see the evidence of the Messiah, that he was the anointed one of God. And so they hardened their hearts. And because of that, the judgment of God came upon them. This happened literally in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian, after the Jews revolted against the Roman occupation, came in with his legions, besieged it for nine months, and then crushed hundreds of thousands. Burnt the temple, raised it. Burnt it such that the gold melted between each rock. And when Jesus prophesied, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another, his word to the letter was fulfilled. As the Roman legions ripped off rock after rock to get the gold that had melted between it. And so God kept his word. Are you sensing a theme here? God is faithful. And then it says, speaking, which I believe, and some people may disagree with me here, no problems. But I believe this is a future time because it talks about that abomination of desolation that we saw in the last chapter that we see in Daniel chapter 12 and that we're going to see in Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 13, which in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus points to as these were types, Antiochus Epiphanes, setting up the abomination of desolation in the Holy of Holies, was a type of the Antichrist and what is to come. And Jesus, looking back in Matthew 24, refers to that. And if we had time, we'd just go through the whole of 24, Matthew 24 and 25. Read it in your spare time. Woo! Put a fire under you. Come on. And it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, or one sevens. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This verse describes a period in time which the Bible says more about than just about any other period of time in history. Friends, it is yet future. God knows the beginning from the end. He says there is going to be this figure, this Antichrist, who is going to take um, the position of the world leader. He's going to make peace with Jerusalem for a seven-year period. And in the middle of that seven-year period, the temple is going to be rebuilt Because he's going to put his abomination of desolation in there and defile and blaspheme God in the worst way possible. And people are going to realize, some people are going to realize, we have made a pact with the devil himself. We thought this man was so wonderful and so full of peace 
and then war and desolations are decreed. One third of the Israeli population was destroyed during World War II. The Bible says in the end times, two thirds are going to be killed. Yet God will deliver them with his mighty hand and once again show that he's the God who will rise up against the spirit of Babylon. He's the God who will have the ultimate victory. He's the God who knows the very beginning from the end and has told us beforehand so that we can have confidence as we look back in history, as we look forward to the future, we see that he's got it all in his hands. Now the question that is, remains for every single one of us is what are we going to do with this knowledge? If we can see that this is the word of God, that this is the truth, are we going to harden ourselves because we just don't want to accept it? Because at the end of the day, we can prove, I can go through every page of this book with you and just show God's handwriting all over it. I can point to you so many prophecies that have been fulfilled. We can go through the maths and show it is impossible for Jesus not to be who he claims he he is. I can go through apologetics um, lecture after apologetics lecture, but if your heart is not willing to receive it, you will never receive it. The Bible talks about at the end times that people will be given the delusion to believe the lies of the Antichrist. And friends, we need to be actually praying, Lord, open my eyes, make my heart soft, make that of my friends and neighbors' hearts soft, that I wouldn't believe the lies of the devil, that I wouldn't believe the lies of the spirit of Babylon that are being indoctrinating in us through all sorts of media nonstop, but that I would be able to see clearly and trust your truth, that I would know that this life is not all there is. Friends, if this life is all there is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to most of most men to be pitied. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then everything changes. Everything changes. If Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then we have no other option than to either shake our fist in defiance and say, bring it on God, I will fight you to the death and face the judgment that that is um, in store for those who reject him, the judgment of the flames of hell itself. Or we can bow our knees before him and say, truly, you are Lord. You are Messiah the Prince. Friends, he hasn't left us any other option. Many of you want to come here and hear a nice story about a lovely guy who walked the uh, shores of Galilee and healed some people and, you know, rose again. And isn't that nice? And we can all eat Easter eggs and go home and be happy. But Jesus didn't give us that option of saying he's just a good teacher, he's a good guy. Either he is Lord of your life or he, or, or, or yeah, he's Lord of your life or you face the coming judgment of the Lord of life. And this is, this is the options that he's given us. But friends, as, as Daniel prayed, he's full of mercy, he's full of forgiveness, he's full of grace for anyone who would receive us receive him. And so the question is, what will we do with this knowledge? I want to ask the band to come up. This is a time for us just to enter into worship and worship our Messiah, the Prince, the one who has come once and for all to take away the sins of the world, who has given us that calling of that heavenly home that we are all to go towards, that hope, that eternal hope of glory, where one day there will be no more suffering, No more death, no more sorrow, because he alone has conquered death. So let's stand up and let's worship our risen Saviour. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.